0: There is a lot of excitement around the world about the investment opportunities being created by the transition away from fossil fuels to cleaner technologies. One such opportunity lies in metals. But the sector has had a challenging year so far in 2023. What might be the reasons for this and when and how might we see the fortunes of this commodity sector becoming brighter again? We discuss all of this and much more with Max Layton, Managing Director and Head of EMEA Commodities Research at City. Welcome to the Commodity Exchange, a podcast where we bring you insights from the world of commodities. Whether you are an investor or just want to learn more about the topic, this podcast is for you. I'm Mubeen Tahir, Director, Macroeconomic Research and Tactical Solutions at WisdomTree. And I'm Nitya Shah, Head of Commodities and Macroeconomic Research here at WisdomTree. Before we begin, I do need to state the following. To clarify, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of WisdomTree and in this episode, City. And are subject to change. Anything we present in this podcast is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, nor as investment or tax advice. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are not a recommendation, offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities and reliance upon them is at the sole discretion of the listener. Please remember past performance is no indication of future results. So with that, to kick things off and bring Max Layton into the
1: discussion today, I will pass it over to Nitesh. Thank you very much, Mabeen, and uh, a big welcome to Max. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing some of your insights across the metal space and uh, maybe into other commodities. Um, It's a great pleasure to have you here on our show. Um, So... I mean, maybe let's start off uh you know with uh talking a little bit about the precious metals uh you know, sector. That's clearly the uh the, you know the, the the most exciting sector of the commodity markets at the moment, um with a lot of geopolitical premium actually having driven uh both gold and silver recently. Um but gold has outpaced silver by quite some margin. Um silver is starting to rise a little bit right now, but uh do you see that uh, continuing? Um...
2: Of course, yeah. And look, yeah, first of all, thanks for having me uh, on the show, uh, Nitesh Mabeen. Uh, it's, you know, it's great to be here. Uh, precious Metals. So, I mean, we, we, we and our economists through the course of at least a, you know, the last quarter had been, you know, if you wind back the clock six to nine months, this is when uh, we initially had thought U.S. growth would have been slowing down. Um, that has been pushed out until the middle of next year. Um, and with that, the bullishness on precious has been pushed out. But of course, you know, gold and silver have a good run, as you mentioned, on some of the geopolitical issues in the past few weeks. certainly become super topical with our clients. Uh, in terms of our view, in the short run, I think it's difficult to split gold and silver. Um, I think on the 6- to 12-month view, we have, you know, a much... Kind of um, stronger bullish view in terms of percentage upside on silver than gold. So you know, I'd, I'd certainly you know we've got gold getting up to two thousand one hundred and fifty dollars over the next um, six to twelve months. Uh, con, you know, it's already trading at you know around nineteen eighty. So that's a around about ten percent upside. Contrast that with silver, where you know we're looking for twenty eight to thirty dollars on silver. That's trading. Roughly twenty-three dollars, twenty-two fifty to twenty-three dollars an ounce. So, in terms of percentage upside, you know, twenty to twenty-five percent plus upside in silver on that six to twelve-month view. So, we certainly see silver outperforming gold on, on on that horizon.
1: Wow. And is that mainly because you expect um, a cyclical recovery, a lot more industrial demand, or um, or is it just the sources of demand are, are changing? Yeah,
2: I mean, a big, big part of the view is that silver is expected to be levered to the U.S. growth slowdown. So both gold and silver have been very resilient um, to the increase in U.S. real rates, increase in U.S. two-year nominal rate. For example, over the last 12 months, um, you know, if I take silver 12 months ago at the lows, it was around $19. And you know real rates, U.S. nominals, dramatically higher over the last 12 months, and yet silver's trading three dollars higher. Um, similar kind of story, but but not as stark as what's going on with silver. And you know why is silver trading a bit higher? Why is gold being so resilient relative to U.S. real rates? Um, it's, it's a couple of reasons. I mean, one you can point to the physical markets um, being relatively robust for precious metals in India and China. Um, but in particular, you can look at the demand growth on the silver side from EVs and from solar panels. Uh, I don't think it's just about that. I think it's very much to me about if you look at the developed market wealth and the asset price outlook for the bulk of that wealth, which is tied up in property and equities, you look at the The outlook and the risk skew has become increasingly uh, skewed to the downside as rates have risen over the last 12 months. So investors, um, relatively wealthy individuals um, are basically shifting some of their assets into gold over the last 12 months because they can see that the risk skew around their portfolio is pretty much heavily skewed to the downside. And the longer we... Kind of persist with these higher rates the more likely it is that we get that recession that downturn the potential downturn in property prices equity prices and such like so you know this is this is a big reason why you have this disconnect between what real rates are doing and what precious metals are doing is because investment is not driven um, by solely by real rates it's driven by the you know the portfolio allocation decisions of relatively wealthy people and, you know, two thirds of global wealth in the developed markets.
1: Yeah. And I guess is there, is there a role that central banks are playing here as well on the gold side? So, you know, there's tremendous demand for gold from uh, emerging market central banks in particular at this point in time. Is that helping gold a lot more relative to silver at this point in time? And maybe that could change later on as uh, silver makes a catch up?
2: That has been certainly been, a you know, a bullish um factor in the physical market, um, at least up until recently. Um, and it's certainly an important narrative for, you know, investors in the gold space alongside the, you know, de-dollarization narrative, um, which is kind of hand in hand with that. And in some countries at least. And uh, I, my issue with that is, is you know, while it's been true in the past, it's very difficult to predict, um the deltas in that on a mm-hmm. on a 6 12 month view let's say you know like you feel fairly confident that the demand will remain robust but will it remain as robust as it was in the last 12 months I think you know that's that's really tough to call as, as an analyst um but look it's certainly an important narrative that certainly supported a goal over the last 12 months
1: yeah so you mentioned both uh, for betakes and uh, yeah. just electrification in general being uh, strong drivers of demand for silver. Has that surprised you on the, on the upside or the, or the downside? Uh, and do you think there's a lot more, you know, is there a lot more exponential growth uh, left in this? Sure.
2: Yeah, so the next couple of years, I mean, certainly, you know, it's obviously more relevant for silver than for gold. The next couple of years, we've got um, silver demand coming from the photovoltaics and autos sector overall, picking up by, you know, in the vicinity of 30 to 40 million ounces, which, you know, in a, in a billion ounce market is, is 3 to 4%, which is, I mean, it doesn't sound like a huge amount, but frankly, it's equal to the demand growth that's being driven by energy transition sectors in copper, and copper gets a lot of attention for that, and silver doesn't get very much attention at all. So it's equal to or greater than the contribution to demand growth um, in, in copper and, and, and that's what we're seeing in silver going forward. Um, you know just for reference, I think we've upgraded our silver, sorry our um, solar installation numbers in China at least three times and maybe four times in the last uh, six months. Um, China is you know, rapidly accelerating its ability and willingness to install solar capacity domestically. And you know we expect. I guess you know the caveat here is we we kind of present the energy transition demand as being structural and it, and it is over any kind of one to five year time period mm-hmm. uh, in our view. But there might be a bit of a soft patch the next six six to nine months. We've talked about a bit of an air pocket. Um, considering there's there's some anecdotes about you know solar panel stockpile things like that. So. You know, it's possibly a little bit of a headwind over the next six to six to nine months that 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 hot that solar story because the installation's been so strong, but we expect it to kind of roll back second half 24, 2025. Um Yeah, I mean, it's certainly supportive, maybe a bit of an air pocket here, but look overall, the silver view is all about U.S. growth expectations u.s two-year nominal coming down and i just make one point on that it's like we've noticed and we've observed the last 12 to 15 months as the for example the u.s two-year nominal uh at silver falls by a relatively small amount and whenever the u.s two-year nominal sells off a fraction silver rallies really aggressively and this has been true for the last you know 12 to 15 months and so it I, I actually think silver has a lot of convexity to the upside on a U.S. growth rollover. And our economists think that that U.S. growth um, slowdown, as I mentioned, starts in the middle of next year. I think what's hmm. been holding silver and to some degree gold back has been that you know, obviously U.S. growth has stayed pretty robust and unemployment relatively low. And at the same time, U.S. Is, uh, Europe has been deteriorating markedly. And so that's put upward pressure on the dollar-euro and and kind of keeping the gold silver trade uh, and, and the bullishness at, at, at bay. You, you've got to think we're getting to the point where it's consensus and it's priced that Europe is going to underperform the U S. And so yeah. from here, we're starting to think that, you know, the, the precious metals complex might trade the absolute slowdown in U S growth rather than the relative slowdown compared to Europe, because mm. most people expect Europe to slow down more quickly and, um and more aggressively than the us over the next six to 12 months i would argue that's largely in the dollar largely in the market and largely in the precious metals complex so now i think we're setting up to trade you know more directly what is going to go on in absolute terms in, in in terms of u.s
1: growth over the next six to 12 months wow that's very interesting that is great um Maybe we, we change gears a little bit. Let, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the the base metal space. And obviously, we've just come away from uh, the London Metal Exchange week. Um, I don't know. Um, tell us a little bit about the sentiment during the week. You know, how was it? Was it strong? Um, you, were the conversations you're having uh, surprising or, um, you know, or, or were this similar to what you've seen in the past? Sure. Yeah,
2: thanks. I uh, mean, LME week. I was certainly the busiest for years and years,
1: like it, at
2: least since 2017, 2018. Um, we had uh, people attending from you know all over the world this year, and um, well, I, I thought it was a really enjoyable week. Like I think people came away more bearish than when they came into the week. I think they entered the week bearish. If you go back, I mean, in my experience, LME week sentiment it starts with essentially if if you had a you calculated the momentum on price across base metals and basically the change in prices over the prior six to eight weeks. If it's down coming into LME week, people come in bearish. They usually end the week bearish. Yeah. <laughs> um, in this case, prices have been grinding lower all year, or well, pretty much since April, and vol had been coming off since April. Been a really tough trading environment for a lot of the investors. Um, and you know, they came in bearish. I think they left incrementally bearish actually. Um And they left incrementally bearish in large part, I think because you had um Asian customers, you know, corporates and institutional um, clients coming to Europe and you had North American and South American clients. And, and generally speaking, the growth in those regions relative to Europe is, is okay. Like basically they came to Europe and they, and they, and they heard all the bearish anecdotes about Portuguese construction industry and German industrial complex and UK economy, <laughs> and, and then they left more bearish. So I think that was a big part of it. And, you know, positioning since then has come down significantly, right? So since LME week, during LME week, net speculative positioning across the complex has gone another leg lower. Uh yeah. And, you know, it's, 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 it's setting up for a difficult year end, I must say. I, I, I think, you know, considering positioning is so low and considering President G is now starting to, you know, look like he's highly focused on the economy, it's, it's, it's trickier right into year end. I mean, that doesn't mean to say there's not some amazing, I, I think, opportunities in metal, base metals, industrial metals, battery metals over the next 12 to 24 months. I just think um, next couple of months is a little bit probably a little bit um, like what it has been over the last six months, which is, which is, um, you know, a bit difficult, a bit choppy, grinding lower.
0: Max, I, I want to ask you about uh, your view on copper, particularly. Um, I've seen uh, numerous articles published recently which quote you as saying something which I found quite interesting. Um, and, I, I, and I'm and i mentioning the quote here that the coming copper boom will make oil's historic price surge in 2008 look like a child's play. Now, it's a fascinating analogy, especially given it's been made against a fossil fuel. Uh, but I'm keen to hear your reasoning behind making it.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. Thanks for the question. Um, so, yeah, look, I think you can, if you look at the copper to oil price ratio, copper has roughly... You know, ballpark. It's traded at around a hundred to one ratio to oil. So you can think about, let's call it late two thousand and seven, early two thousand and eight, oil at eighty dollars, as being roughly equivalent to eight thousand dollar copper, roughly where we are today. And you can think about where oil got to, uh, one hundred and fifty dollars by mid two thousand and eight, as as uh, fifteen thousand dollars. So uh, in that Context We can start to kind of think about analogies from the first half 2008 and compare them to what might happen to copper over the next couple of years. Um, so I think copper basically has everything that oil had in the first half 2008, and I'll go through what I mean by that in a minute, but it has everything and some. And in a way, the reason why I use the you know make it look like child's play is because, um, you know. Fifteen thousand could well turn out to be highly conservative, actually. You know, and, and I think it'll be clear when I when I spell out some of this stuff. But essentially, oil is a three trillion ballpark three trillion dollar market, depending on the price. You know, it obviously varies between like two and up to four trillion. But let's call it roughly a three trillion dollar market in a ninety trillion dollar global economy. So huge market, That's why it's so important to everyone. If you go and like, I, I obviously went and, you know, spoke with all of the industry experts that were, you know, around and really focusing on that market first half of essentially oil rally, the bulk of that rally happened in a pretty significant contango in a period that most people thought was a surplus market. And that it, the rally was generally attributed to some index fund buying, a little bit of, you know, speculative buying and, a little bit of a peak oil demand story now if 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 a three trillion dollar physical market can go up on some index and speculative buying in a peak oil demand story let's compare that to copper copper is like a 250 billion dollar market depending on the price um but right now it's you know these prices we're talking roughly a 200 billion dollar market so we're talking oil is a 15x bigger market so we're talking dramatically smaller physical market, and then you look at the balances. So 2025, 2026, depending on exactly when we get the recovery in in, in uh, cyclical, some kind of even just a bottoming out in cyclical demand growth, and we, you know, we don't think that's coming next year, but we do think it's coming 2025. So it is it is you know some way away, but if it happens in 2025, we're looking at a deficit in copper. Uh, a deficit in copper on on our numbers that is equivalent to around a four million barrel a day deficit in oil, right which you know for anyone who who you know looking at the oil market, that's historically a massive deficit <laughs> for the oil yeah. market. so uh, so first of all, just from a balance perspective, the balance difference between copper and oil is in, in the first half of eight is stark and suggests that copper could go up by more than what oil did. in in the first half of eight because oil was in the surface. Second thing is when you look at quantifying, like you look at trying to ballpark the amount of investor interest that can, the amount of investor positioning, index fund buying, you know, so most people think it was all about a story and index fund buying in the first half of eight. You look at copper and copper is, in our opinion, is the energy transition bull trade across the BCom, S&P, GSCI, commodity complex Um, so it's got this unique set of factors which means that you know we're, we're finding like my uh based on you know our client interest and the broadness of that interest you've got energy people coming into metals because of the energy transition cop has this kind of unique set of characteristics that means that when they want to put on either an alpha trade exposed to energy transition when they want to put on an esg friendly trade um within the commodities uh, futures complex and, and options complex when they want to put when they want to find liquidity to be able to put that trade on and and or whether they want to put on a global recovery or fear of missing out of a global recovery trade all of these things lead to copper basically copper has this unique set that none of the other commodities have and for that reason you know I' got to say the readership of our copper book, which we published three or four months ago was is, is you know it, it, it was truly off the charts. Like we publish a lot of stuff, and it's not not all of it's read, but this one was well and truly read and it and it reflects the the interest in this space. like it's they're not reading it, in my opinion because the copper price is going up, right? Obviously, copper had a tough twelve months and bowls come off. and they're not reading it because it just doubled and it's super topical. They're reading it because it it has all these characteristics that means that when they're ready to when they're ready to believe the world isn't going to get worse economically, that's the first trade they're going to put on. And then when they're ready to you know believe that their EV and renewable rollout is gathering pace, that's the first trade they'll put on. And then when they're ready to try and um, you know shift the balance of their index funds towards more ESG friendly commodities copper is going to get a a significantly higher weight. Um, So when I add up all of those investors, like just stepping back from it, when I add up all those investors, you're you're talking about potentially up to double. So the the previous maximum long position in copper on the LME and COMEX was about 2 million tons. Um, uh, Sorry, about, yeah, it, it reached about 2 million tons. Uh, we think can get up to about 4 million tons in 2025, 2026. So basically double the previous peak, right? And so we we actually think you get dramatically more buying than what we saw in oil in the first half of eight in a dramatically smaller market and in a dramatically tighter supply-demand balance than what we saw in the oil market. So from that perspective, eight to 15 looks you know eminently Possible and potentially, obviously, 15 is our bull case. Just for clarification, as you know, our bull case scenario, our average for 2025 forecast is 12,000, which is still up 50% from the current futures curve. Very, and probably the best, you know, the strongest projected return across any of the commodities we're looking at on that time horizon. Um, But yeah, the bull case is 15, and you know. From what I've just kind of laid out, I think you can see why that may even be conservative.
1: Wow, that does look uh, like an amazing trade. I mean, I think you're right that, that copper has so many traits that other metals don't, and obviously the depth and liquidity is a key thing for for a lot of investors. I mean, a lot of people talk about nickel as being something important to the transition, the you know, the uh, especially its use in in batteries, but. It, um, you know, currently class one nickel, um, the, you know, the higher grade stuff is probably more suitable for the, uh, battery, um, value chain, which is undersupplied, but class two is massively oversupplied. There are technologies, I guess, that allow for conversion between class two to class one. Um, how do you see those progressing? And do you think that we're, we're probably in, in the nickel world, um, you know that you potentially get an oversupply of the of the relevant uh, uh, material.
2: Yeah, thanks. I, I think this is actually already happening. Yeah, I mean, we're we're starting to just see it happen um, over the last few months in the market it's market as well as our forecasts. Our balances look like we're going to have material nickel class one surpluses over the next twelve to twenty four months, and this is why. We think the nickel price will be trading between 16 and 20,000. So we're sellers 20,000 plus, and we're buyers 16,000, roughly trading at 18,000. So we're you know, we're bang in the middle there. Um, very short run, I think the nickel positioning is as stretched as any of the metals. and I think it's highly vulnerable to a short covering rally into year end. So you know, if you wanted to express a you know what if President G misses policy, I think nickel gives you that. Uh, leverage to that view so you know certainly it could rally to 20 to twenty-two thousand in the next couple of months either on china easing or some indonesia supply risks that that exist but generally speaking this class one surplus is going to weigh on the price and bring it back down after after that even if that does occur and you know you have it coming back down to these kinds of levels over the next six to twelve months so i mean the thing with nickel is it's a volume growth market, so um, we we do see very strong demand growth from electric vehicles. For example, um, on a one to five year view, I, I think the tech is getting dramatically better on on electric vehicles within China, and you know we've had the view that it's going to make its way out of China one way or another. And I think this recent deal with Leap Motors and Stellantis is is you know kind of a novel. Way of, of to see that happen. So as this kind of you know uh, vehicles, which to a large degree with the new batteries in China are overcoming range anxiety in the SUV, even truck category. As these batteries and cars make their way out of China over the next couple of years, I think we're going to have another really big increase in the penetration rates in SUVs and trucks, which kind of really is the part that hasn't been cracked because. Those vehicles just, you know, the current batteries outside of China just aren't overcoming range anxiety. Anyway, that is to say that I think this EV story, while it's getting a bit of a knock at the moment of the next six months or so, it's going to come roaring back second half, 24, 25, 26, and nickel will have very strong demand growth. Um, and that will mean the volume of the market, the value of the market will be, gro- will be growing. And that means that, you know, there will be producers out there who – uh uh growing volumes um who you know you, you may be able to kind of make money by getting exposure to that so i wouldn't say that you know we see any price upside but perhaps if you speak to our equity call and my equity colleagues at sydney uh city um then they'll be able to help you spot the nickel names that that, that maybe can benefit from the volume growth in the market um, rather than the, the price
0: max you've uh You've mentioned uh, ESG as one of the motivations that commodity investors have and considerations that they might have. And and of course, certain commodities are relatively better than others on that particular uh, criterion. Uh, but uh, just taking copper's example, of course, uh, based on the International Energy Agency's research, I was saying that y- you need almost 10 times more copper to generate the same amount of electricity from offshore wind than you, need, than you do from, uh, say, coal and natural gas. So the world clearly needs a lot more of these materials, whether it's copper or nickel or many others, uh, to be able to decarbonize. Uh, but how do you square that uh, conversation with with your clients about uh, the idea that to 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 extract more of these materials, you need to mine more of these materials, and of course, there is a price to pay for that. But you overall get a better outcome. So, uh, what are your ways to frame that discussion that for the greater good, you do need more of these materials?
2: Yeah, I I think what we've done is we've done some work where we've looked at from a GHG perspective, so from a climate change mitigation perspective, uh, what does the metals industry as a whole, and we're including all the big direct emitters like steel, aluminium, um, into this discussion, what what kind of um, net emissions might this space as a whole be uh, generating if you give uh, the, the metals industry credit for enabling EVs, carbon capture and um, and uh, renewables and and if you give them credit on a GHG basis they can essentially you know more consumption of the metals going into the right areas based on current tech can can basically drive us onto a net zero path. I mean, it's it's and, and also contribute to global growth and poverty alleviation and importantly, a reduction in biodiversity loss associated with climate change. Right. So from the global basis, it's fairly, uh, you know, we published this work a couple of years ago and, you know, so many different firms have run the ruler over it and and, and we basically had no pushback. So. I think it's fairly intuitive even for people that, you know, when you give the the industry the, at the aggregate global level the credit for enabling these technologies to uh, exist economically and, and to be rolled out globally, the electrification of the grid, for example, um, that, that, you know, those things are, you know, evident, you know, but that's not to say that we take, like, I, I don't take a, you know, Make a judgment on the, you know, they're, they're on the relative importance of the global impacts versus the local impacts, and the local impacts, as you say, they're real, and you know, the mining industry obviously, you know, um, needs to do its best to to uh, minimize those impacts. Um, in terms of the scale of the impact, and this idea that we, you know, we might need dramatically more copper to to meet to get onto this net zero path. I actually think that at the right price, and, you know, copper isn't a $3 trillion market like oil. So, for example, a doubling in the copper price is, is a small share of global GDP. It doesn't necessarily drive huge greenflation alone. But if I run the models and I look at a doubling of the copper price, we are going to, on paper, we're going to get a very, very dramatic response in scrap recovery. Right, so there are ways that we can clear the copper market at the right price and have enough metal for the energy transition. Um, if we just reclaim more from the scrap, for example, without you know throwing out our lamp um, or putting it in the bin, the, the, the tiny bit of copper in that cord gets reclaimed at the right price. For example, or antique dealers globally, you know, melt down some of the brass instead of trying to sell it uh, as 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 a, a, you know as a kind of a a relatively modern antique I don't don't obviously want to recommend people melt down ancient wares. But I think there is a pool that every year that comes back to the market in the vicinity of 14 million tons of scrap, and we're only reclaiming 4 million tons of that, right? So there's a lot of room at the right price to rise up that scrap cost curve and kind of meet the energy transition demand. But you have to get the higher price, right? So that's that's kind of the reason we came up with 12000 One of the reasons, one is because maybe the SRB maybe starts to talk about selling at that level. But the other big reason is because at that level, we get a lot more scrap and that balances the market.
1: Well, that's uh, that is truly fascinating. I mean, that's, as you say, There's um, clearly when you look at the full value chain, uh, there's a lot of merit to um, shifting materials and uh, it it may not impact our lives as as much as people expect. Um, I guess another big material in this energy transition is uh, lithium. And, um, you know, obviously lithium has had a tough time this year. It's fallen uh, by quite some uh, margin. But uh, um, where where do you think lithium prices could go um, going forward? I mean, it's it's a relatively small market at the moment. I think we all expect it to get bigger but tell us a little bit about some of the dynamics of the market growing and whether the price can also rise as the, as the market grows yeah
2: this is a great market i have got to say as an analyst i think you know i'm super excited to be involved in covering this particular market going forward um it has it, it, it has shown itself to have the potential to have extreme volatility you know, five thousand dollars three or four years ago, up to $80,000 down to 20,000 in the start of the second quarter of this year, back to 40,000 by the end of the second quarter this year, and now back down to roughly $20,000 depending on the product. Um, super volatile market, super interesting to analyze because, you know, it has a couple of characteristics that are quite different to, you know, the other commodities that, that we look at. Um, um, it. Is relatively difficult to store, certainly in hydroxide form, which is a which is ninety percent of the consumption outside of China is in hydroxide form. It's, it, it kind of, it's difficult to store for more than three to three to six months. Uh, and on top of that, it's a market that's that's basically booming. You know, I mean, it's been growing. It's going to grow on our numbers at least at twenty percent per annum every year through the end of the decade, and we don't kind of deal forecast beyond that decade but you know at least 20 percent per year beyond uh, through the end of the decade and that kind of growth compares uh, copper at three percent oil at practically nothing coal at negative i mean this is an absolutely but it's doubling in size every three to four years um so it's a booming market um and look um, maybe i'll leave it there but in terms of price forecast we think it's kind of going to it's down around the cost curve here. Stay here uh, around these levels for the next six or twelve months, and it's, at some point, this is going to set us up for for a, potentially set us up for a pretty strong rebound. Um, but at the moment, it's all about destock and restock cycles and oversupply, and yeah, you know, it's it's not great at the moment in terms of um, the physical balances, but. I think that is going to help this market grow in terms of liquidity going forward. Uh, I think There's kind of a natural price level between 20 and 30,000, where the consumers and producers um, are going to be inclined to meet, and, and that will really help the liquidity on the exchanges and OTC over the next 12 months.
0: Max, uh, of course, uh, China is an important frontier of in the lithium market. Of course, particularly when we talk about lithium ion battery manufacturing, um, and uh, with with U.S. looking to reduce its dependence on China for all sorts of uh, technologies and various supply chains, um, and U.S. of course is a relatively small market in terms of the production of lithium itself. Do you do you see U.S. being able to? Uh, reduce its dependence there and and maybe the dynamics of the lithium supply chain changing in the
2: coming years yeah us is uh i mean maybe the, the time horizon is important here right because the next couple of years uh there isn't a lot of supply coming on in the us and it will be dependent on um imports uh whether it be of batteries or a product or um yeah batteries or products on 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 the lithium side looking out towards the end of the decade though there are there is the potential and and certainly we're modeling that on the kind of mine supply side the u s is nearly depend nearly kind of independent um and, and, and basically raises its mine supply potentially quite dramatically to roughly equal what domestic consumption of lithium will be. Now, that doesn't mean that the U.S. will have the conversion capacity on the mine supply, but at least in terms of the, the mine supply part of the chain, U.S., on our numbers, almost gets to to uh, self-sufficient by
1: 2030. Well, So, Max, thank you so much for coming on to our show and sharing your insights uh, across uh, such a broad range of uh, uh, commodities with our audience. Um, if our uh audience wanna follow some of your research, uh, how, how do they get hold of it? Where where do where do they go to, to read your stuff?
2: Sure. So I mean they can I think get in touch with you and you know get my email from, from you or they can um find me on LinkedIn uh and you know we'd be you know happy to um you know introduce them to the city sales team and on city's research. Excellent.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much, Max. And uh, I guess one closing question from me uh, before you go, uh, if you must pick your one favorite metal for the short term, say the next six months, and your one favorite metal for the medium term, let's say the next three years, what would you pick?
2: Yeah, so I'll take the second part first, which is clearly copper by, by, by some distance. Um, at some point, I think lithium will set up for you know, a, a potential... Um, doubling in price, similar to what we're forecasting in copper. But uh, I think that's, that's maybe, um, you know, you have to get the right circumstances. But copper is the medium-term one, we're not, we're not really particularly bullish on any of the industrial metals over the next uh, six months. So I'm going to actually maybe cheat a little bit and pick silver. So, you know, we think silver up to 28 to $30 since the six to 12-month um, top pick. Excellent. Well,
0: thank you very much uh, once again, Max, for your insights today. And uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Commodity Exchange. If you want to hear more from us, please uh, subscribe on whichever platform you're using. And please do take a moment to leave us a rating. You can follow us uh, on uh, LinkedIn or X uh, at Nitesh WT and at Mubeen Tahir WT. And if you want to learn more about uh, commodities, visit WisdomTree's website, where we have a wide range of research materials and insights. Until next time, take care.